In a world brimming with infinite possibilities, it seems that actionizing ideas is critically a more important skill to have than the ability to produce them. It takes a particular strength of emotional boldness to create and innovate, which is why today I'm excited to present a conversation with Richard Christensen. Richard Christensen is the founder of Chandelier Creative, an agency that operates between Los Angeles, New York, and Paris. Chandelier Creative is one of the most disruptive agencies in the advertising space, creating campaigns for brands ranging from Hermes, Virgin, Calvin Klein, and Cartier. Richard runs his LA outpost from the arts and culture bookshop Owl Bureau in Highland Park, just minutes away from Flamingo Estate, his home and garden that inspired him to launch a brand that celebrates botany and horticulture. Richard shares how his blue sky childhood growing up in outback Australia shaped his noble work ethic and built a foundation that fuels his imagination and creativity. He delves into his career evolution, one rife with risk that reaps serendipitous rewards. Last but not least, we talk about travel. Despite having traveled to every continent in the world, even in the most remote of places from Mount Everest to the North and South Pole, the one place that Richard never really got to experience is his own home. Here's Richard on the line. Whew, all right. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you are extremely busy, so I appreciate you making time to let me interview you. I am so grateful. It's nice to be here. So where in the world are you right now? I'm in uh, my bookshop, the Owl Bureau in Highland Park in Los Angeles. And how has the last few months been for you? I mean, as you know, the last few months have been, I mean, in some ways quite exhilarating. I mean, there's been obviously a lot of change, but uh, I mean, we'll get, I'm sure we'll speak a little bit about Flamingo Estate and the brand and, and how we've developed that. But what has been really nice is to see people enjoying being together, cooking meals, thinking about the food they eat and the music they listen to and the, the books they read and the people they want to spend their time with. That's been amazing. I'm, I'm included in that list. I've had a really good opportunity to sit and just sit and think about stuff again. I think before COVID happened, I was saying to the team, I was on a plane across the country, sometimes twice a week, you know, so uh, I haven't been on a plane in months. And yeah. Uh, and so it's really given me the chance to take stock and uh, and think about what uh, it's important. So and in that sense, it's been a really interesting few months. So has the lockdown shifted any priorities for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it crept up a little bit, right? It uh, it made me much more aware of how, I, as I said, how I spend my time. You know, I guess in a way, it, it helped us. Because we got to slow down and really got to uh, edit our choices. So um, it has really helped me think about, really, it's around people. You know, I also think because I had such a social job, it's hard to figure out who your friends are and who people around you are there because they need something or they're there for work. So when that all disappeared, it was really nice just to be still with the people who you really got electricity and enjoyment from. I think also just being able to really self-select the things that brought you pleasure or, or brought you happiness. So for me, that was a really welcome change. And I know you've recently moved from New York to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you were sort of already starting to embrace a slowdown of some sorts prior to the pandemic? I, I don't know whether a slowdown is the word. I mean, actually, to be honest, we've been busier than ever. But I think, yeah. you know, this is not a, a unique story. I came to America. I worked 
worked every weekend, every night until 11 o'clock. I spent more time in our office in New York than I did, than I have in any other space ever, anywhere. And it consumed my late 20s and early 30s and all of my 30s and my early 40s. So I came to Los Angeles almost accidentally. I grew up on a farm in Outback Australia and I have longed for days when I could get my hands dirty and my fingernails dirty and grow something. And that's always been my goal. So I came here really feeling the pull of that and, and doing that. And so it's a different kind of busy. And then yeah. you know, obviously I've started my agency at Chandelier in New York, opened the Los Angeles office. And a few years ago when we did that shift, felt right for what was going on culturally, you know, really listening to what was going on in culture, saying, okay, advertising's dying. Um, how do we align ourselves more closely with content? How do we align ourselves more closely with content makers? And how do we have space to have editing and space to have production needs? And so Los Angeles, where the space was cheap and, and people were brave and, and curious and felt like a really natural step. And then, you know, after that, started spending more time in my, my garden, my seven acre garden and growing things and, and making things and flexing a different type of creative muscle. I'm so I'm just like so remarkably grateful for that. So you mentioned you grew up in a farm in rural Australia and mm -hmm. this is actually one detail of who you are and your story that I really love. <laughs> and now you run an award-winning creative agency with offices all over the world. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about your humble beginnings? Humble beginnings. Um, I had such a blessed childhood. I was, I grew up in a little town called Duramba, which is um, in Australia, sort of on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. My mum and dad were farmers and gardeners. And I mean, like anyone that comes from a family that lives on the land, you, you know how radically hard it is to work and you work your calendar is based on the you know the sunshine and you don't take a weekend off and it's not a nine-to-five job so you know this very strong noble work ethic from my parents so we grew up on this farm and um my brother and i have a twin brother the first school we went to had 24 kids i think in the whole school and one classroom for everyone in every grade so this very special very unusual childhood i think because we were so remote we got to use our imagination so much you know we didn't really have any friends um, because they were so far away uh, so it's just my brother and i so we'd make you know we'd make things and we'd climb things and we'd ride things and we just had a really energetic blue sky childhood i think the other really important part about that was the farming sector in australia was doing very badly and my mom and dad had to save the farm so like every other farmer they did that by offering sort of this australian experience for japanese tourists and uh chinese tourists so in competition with any other farmer in the area we would be trying to get tourists to come in for an australian farming first-hand um, glimpse and so my brother and I would shear sheep and we would tie cabbage patch dolls to the back of sheep so that they could the Chinese tourists could gamble on them and my dad would make us throw frozen crabs into crab pots so the next day the Japanese tourists thought they would catch a <laughs> real crab and my you know, my mom built a steam train and so onward and onward and onward we just had this remarkably creative childhood born from necessity of really trying to save the farm and so you know I never went to school for design or anything related to to advertising and or anything creative so I think that that, that sort of jazz hands quality put on a show tell a story, make something up. How do we do it tomorrow? How do we do it better? How do we do it faster? How do we how do we entertain people? How do we put on theater was yeah. um, ingrained in my childhood. And my mom and dad are so creative and they never knew that, you know. And so 
you know, as a late teenager, I left Australia and went to London and I think to go to law school. And I got there, this boy from rural Australia landing in busy London. You know, at the time I didn't realize it, but now I understand I had the most remarkable foundation any kid could have. Just this ability to think on my feet and think creatively and be resourceful. And if you didn't know the answer, make it up, just keep going. So served me very well. And, and definitely, obviously, in starting a business and, and all that other stuff that happened downstream. I'm so curious to know, how did your fascination for culture and media start? You know, my mom used to subscribe to World of Interiors and to British Vogue and to some American and British magazines. And so we lived on a dirt, long dirt road. And I would wait for the postman to come in his truck with those monthly magazines from around the world. And so my brother and I would just sit and tear through those things. I mean, really just like it was the only way we had a window into the rest of the world. Largely because my mom was so curious and had good taste. And we really were educated in the world through those magazines, which back then were amazing. You know, World of Interiors, if you go back into the 80s, was stoic, this sort of National Geographic meets uh, Laura Ashley world of beautiful, uh, glimpse into beautiful homes and the way people live. So super grateful for that. And then, you know, obviously a little bit later, American television, and we watched Dynasty a lot as a kid. I remember watching it with my brother and just being like, oh my God, that's what America looks like. That's America. Oh my God, we got to go there. We've got to go to that country one day. So I, I love that you've sort of found your portal into the outer world through magazines because you do, you own one of the most incredible bookshops in all of Los Angeles and personally my favorite in the entire world, I think, because you have this really personal selection of just the best bits all over the world. What are your thoughts about media consumption today as someone who grew up with the sort of aspirational imagery of leafing through magazines. Well, let's talk about books first. I mean, this is the city that invented entertainment. This is the city that invented make-believe. This is a city I longed to come to as a kid in Outback Australia. It's the city with the birthed Walt Disney. So you come here and there's like three bookshops, one other good bookshop here, and all these creative people with no analog inspiration. So. For me, selfishly, you know, one of my favorite things in New York was to go and sit on the floor at Barnes & Noble. And when I had no money, I'd go there and just take photos of the pages that I needed to use for references and, uh, and other bookshops as I got older. So for my team here and for me, I was like, God, oh, we, need, we need to open a bookshop. There is none here. And to, dedicate it to fashion and photography and art and architecture and all the humanities. So for me, that analog joy of bookstores and the same joy I got used to get from magazines, foreign magazines, which restock, was missing. And I miss that because there's a surprise and serendipity to opening a book or going through a bookshop. If you are on your computer, you're looking for something specific. So you get stuck in the algorithm or your Instagram algorithm. So you only see the stuff that they know you're going to like. So, you know, I learn about the greats about Irving Penn and about Herberts and about architects I love and, and people who created worlds by accident, by association with someone else in a book or in, in the in the book island. So for me, that's super important. You know, and everyone said that my accountant especially was like, oh my God, Richard, of all of your crazy ideas, like this is the one that will bring you down. You cannot build a big bookshop in Los Angeles. You'll go broke. And uh, we have not. We are still in business. And um, so I'm very happy that we can actually even tell people that it's actually a profitable business to have a bookstore if you do it well. So anyway, so that's one thing. And then, um, you know, I guess the other thing is that uh, we actually just today, we had a call with Netflix today. We're doing a project with them and I 
I, I shouldn't say this, but I don't even look at Netflix because I'm so paralyzed by choice. And I think that's the thing. We're just so spoiled for choice now about every possible thing in our digital lives, especially, I guess, especially now while everyone's inside, you know, it's really just like there is a gluttony of, of options, which you could say is a really wonderful thing. But also um, there was something nice about growing up in Outback Australia with six television stations and couple of magazines and I try not to clutter my head anymore with junk and I try not to fill my body with junk and I'm trying hard I'm on the anti-junk uh, cruise right now across the board with everything I'm policing it very very hard and you are a really great architect when it comes to ideas and creating experiences your ability to ideate and collaborate and execute is truly exceptional i feel like stepping into owl bureau or flamingo estate is a completely transportive experience where do you find all of your inspiration i mean I, i'm a sponge for stuff i see obviously and um perhaps the one interesting thing about the way we work as a company and the way i've wor always worked as a as a creative director, as an art director before that, was to start from a place of make-believe. And we used to have a house, for example, we used to have a, a the agency had a, a property up in Long Island, which was sort of a weekend place for the team and for, for all of our collaborators. And before we did anything, I wrote a story about this um, jazz singer who had an affair with a, um, an Italian ceramicist and they were both married and it was just a scandal. So they moved to Long Island and created a compound and surrounded themselves with furniture from Gioponti and specific types of food. And so anyway, that narrative grounded every decision we made in terms of what piece of furniture went in or out or what, what we, who we invited in there and what we did, what music we played and everything. So, and as we do that with clients, it's also we start with the story first. We make up a story about someone and, or, or we borrow a mythical story or a story in culture. And then we, we make every design decision based on that. So Owl was done that way, Flamingo State was done that way, and you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of projects over the last 14 years. I've all been down that way, and it's fun for me to look back at this sort of. We, we traditionally make a film about that person, a small film. So it's fun to look back at those Inception films, uh, especially if you're doing a hotel, or you're doing, you're you're crafting a rebrand for someone, and you're like, oh, this was about this this Japanese witch that lived in a cave, and she came out and saw the light, and, and you know, then you get down to sort of, oh, actually, we're selling sneakers, but um, it's nice to have that you know, that breadcrumb trail, if you will. How did you pivot from pursuing law to now running your own creative agency? I should never have studied law. Uh, it was a good way to get out of Outback Australia. And, uh, you know, I was so young and went to London and I was so poor. That's the other thing. I was so broke. And I started working in bars in London. I started as a bartender, serving beers to people. I was uh, eight, nine, 18 or 19 and uh, was living on my tips. So needed, you know, someone to give me an extra dollar for it or a pound as it was for, a, you know, a drink I'd serve. And so I worked in a very, very, very busy bar in, in the West End in London. It's sort of a bar that media people would come to. And I would, and I was the best one there. I would remember everyone's name. I would remember the big tippers. I would remember everyone's story. I had a notebook in my back pocket. I would write things down constantly. Anyway, this one guy who used to always come in said to me once, you are a good storyteller. You know how to deal with assholes and you know how to multitask. You should work in advertising. <laughs> so that kind of opened the door to uh, a wild bunch of coincidences. And one of them was um, through a sort of strange series of events was accepted into a program that Benetton ran called Fabrica, which is still around, but a little bit different now, where they would invite 25 people under, I think under the age of 25, I can't remember, to go to a campus in rural 
Italy and uh, they would let them be creative and build sports cars or do campaigns or, or they collaborate with other Italian brands and, and nonprofits and um, this golden, 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 golden world of um, creative people being paid to live in a Italian countryside being creative all day long and, and people from all around the world. And Olivieri Toscani, who has this huge influence, who some people know is sort of the mastermind behind Benetton in its heyday. There was very controversial campaigns they did around HIV and around um, immigrants and around uh, death row and all sorts of other stuff. He was running Fabrica, he was my boss. And um, really believed in people biting off more than they can chew. So he didn't, he wasn't worried that I'd never been to art school or creative school. He loved it that an Australian lawyer was with an African drummer and a Japanese fashion designer and they're all <laughs> together and they're asked to do something they'd never done before because his feeling was they do something that would be very different to someone who was trained in it. I learned a lot from him. In the spirit of, I guess, biting off more than you can chew, he, Benetton has still had then a, a very controversial magazine called Colors. I was at 22 and he said, can you would like to run Colors, be the creative director. And uh, we, my friend actually from Italy, who uh, one of my roommate when I was there was was here in Los Angeles last week. And he's like, Richard, do you ever think how crazy it is? Like, I don't think he knew how to turn on a computer. So, um, but you know, sink or swim, I decided to swim. And it was it was amazing. I had a great time. I learned a lot. And I, I sucked up again, a little, just a lot of information, read everything, thought about everything. It was very, very passionate about the environment and around politics and those things I still am was kind of bored with magazines then early days of facebook like very very early days of social media just like really just thinking oh, i wish there was a place for people like me to hear about the stuff that didn't feel boring and so my next step after that i was um i was in a conference in sweden i think and i had sat next to this man who said what you know what do you think about magazines and i was like oh there's nothing for people like me i just wish there was a magazine that was sort of like playboy meets national geographic meets vogue and it was about activism and politics but also design and kind of went on and on and on and uh, I didn't know this man at all and uh, he called a week later and said introduced himself and he's a quite famous Scandinavian media mogul I didn't know at the time and he said you know you you're very vocal with your thoughts around what's missing if I give you the money do you want to start that magazine and so I moved to Sweden in the middle of winter the second country I had been to where I didn't know the language and uh, started working on a political magazine. And then that ultimately brought me to America. So just because I could tell a joke at a bar. <laughs> it's it's strung along a series of serendipitous experiences mm -hmm. and offerings. I feel like that is one central theme to your story so far. It's just, it's rampant with all these serendipitous moments. Yeah, and you know, it's true. And I, you know, recently just took stock of that a little bit. I feel as though this pandemic has sort of like been an opportunity to tie the bow on all those packages together mm -hmm. and be like, okay, that this entire chapter, which has been a wild ride, is over. And I'm now going to do something new with the second half of my life. Had this have not happened and had we have not had a real record scratch stop moment, I might not have been able to really put the foot on the brakes mm -hmm. and be like, okay, where do we go now? I'm so, so grateful for that. Knowing when it's time to move on and when it's time to say, you're done here. It's time to learn something new, which I definitely have. And when did you start Chandelier Creative? We are 14 years old next week on my birthday. Well, congratulations. Very old now. And happy birthday. How do you cultivate the creative confidence to build and execute these visions? What do you mean by that? 
I think everyone has the capacity to have all of these ideas floating in their head, but it takes a different type of muscle to actually go out and create and build those ideas. And one thing that I'm so fascinated by is your ability to execute ideas and everything that you work on is honestly like so um, high-minded. And I'm curious if this is like a conscious process or what would your advice be to any young creative who has all these great, fantastic ideas, but maybe not quite the confidence to go out and build it yet? Uh, to me, it's almost the other. I don't think I had the confidence, all the ideas. I think a lot of that stuff, especially in the early part of my career, was because I had the belief in forward momentum, you know, and just actually doing the work. And so if, as I said, I think just because my parents are farmers, like I'm a big believer that the hardest thing is just like putting one foot in front of mm. another and actually doing it. So I think that was, that's really it. Uh, Picasso perhaps had said, uh, the muse will find you, but she better find you working. Meaning anyone can get an idea, you know, but really the, the key to success is people who are actually able to try to put it into action, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a poster outside, and I'm sorry, lots of bumper stickers today. There's a poster outside <laughs> the office um, that's been there for years that someone wrote or painted on the wall, a Maya Angelou quote that says, um, your dreams won't work unless you do. And I love that expression. You know, what's the worst that can happen? God, just do it. That's a really beautiful sentiment. Um, so I'm going to move on to talking about travel. I know travel is a huge part of drawing inspiration for a creative director's life. What has been the biggest challenge at this time? Because we can't travel right now? Yes. I mean, also, that's kind of what I said earlier. I had traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled and have been so lucky to go to every continent and you know we maybe we'll talk about my crazy travel trips up Everest and across the North Pole and the South Pole and trying to find these places that were uh, um, at the edge of the map and the place I had never really got to experience was my own home and so I actually have loved it I've loved being at home it's been it's been it's been amazing so no not really no challenges actually yeah it certainly changed my idea of what a happy weekend looks like for sure and I wanted to talk to you about Flamingo Estate. The story yes. behind how mm -hmm. you discovered and acquired the estate is pretty surreal. And it all started with someone referring you as a beekeeper to help restore the garden. Yeah, I mean, that's the simple story. It, it started because I met the owner who had lived there for 65 years and we became friends. And I mean, it was just such a strange, surreal thing. I met him. I was on a, I was filming something here in Los Angeles, as you know, and I heard about the property. And uh, as soon as I got there, I was like, oh, my God, what is this place? It's seven acres in the middle of Los Angeles and not even in a sort of grandiose way, but just uh, the garden. As you, as I said earlier, you know, I'd lived 20 years in uh, New York. I had lived in a shoebox and I had spent every waking hour inside the four walls of an office. And so to have this rolling hill and dreaming of a garden, I remember seeing it and just being, just so you, you know, you know, when you see something, you know in your gut that this is a this is something important. It was mm. that for me and I it was so overgrown. It was he was a hoarder and he was the property was in deep, deep neglect. And 
and really needed some love and attention. And I didn't even know there was a pool there until I went onto Google Earth and I looked up above the house and I saw this overgrown empty pool. And you just had no context of what the property was like because it was so neglected and abandoned. And so I made that image my screensaver on my computer and I looked at it every day. And I was like, oh, one day I'm going to live there. Kind of sort of joking at the time, but kind of not. You ask the universe and it provides, I guess. And so, you know, over several years, um, got to know John, who was the owner. And, you know, the story, he was in his late 80s when I met him. He and I struck up a friendship. And uh, he worked in film. Everyone in Los Angeles works in film. So he's sort of like, okay, whatever. And sort of had no, and, you know, had never really seen inside the house before I bought it. But, you know, talking about world creation, you know, I talk a lot about who my heroes are to this, the team here. And like Walt Disney is my hero and other people who build worlds. And so as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a world. We can create a world here. And we did, you know, I'm very proud of it. And I know I'd say that with such huge, huge, huge gratitude and thanks for a lot of people who helped and gave their thoughts and their, their energy into it. It was definitely a, a very, very big group effort. And did restoring the garden at Flamingo Estate help you return to your roots a little bit? You know, more than that. I said the house was sort of neglected and tired and mm-hmm. needed some love. I was neglected and tired and needed some love. And I... In a little bit of a Julia meets Julia way, there was this parallel restoration going on. You know, we planted 600 trees and we we regenerated all the soil and we gave everything water for the first time in decades. And we, you know, you know we restored the irrigation and we built collapsing walls and all this sort of stuff. And, and it filled my lungs and my heart and my head with color and ideas and energy and activity and just the garden especially brought me back to life in a way I was secretly longing for. Uh, it was it was amazing and, and still is. You know, I just, I'm just now sort of really realizing how incredibly grateful I am for that part of the story now that I'm like, oh God, I, I get to wake up and listen to the birds chirping and go pick apricots and go feed my chickens and you know, <laughs> stuff that I never would have been able to do or dream of even doing when I was sitting behind a computer in, in Soho. So um, yeah, it's it's changed my whole life. When I was putting together your interview, I was actually thinking about your garden metaphor a lot because I did see a sort of correlation between your creativity and the regenerative power of horticulture. Mm -hmm. Would you say that there are philosophies from gardening that you apply into your life or even your creative work? Yes, the the garden is an amazing classroom and teacher. You need to look no further than the garden to really, really see creativity, you know, in its truest form. And a year ago, I had a really, really difficult breakup. I uh, had a rough year at work. I felt like I hadn't been my best self. Just a, it was a dark year, a year and a bit ago from, from where we are now. But, you know, I went, I spent a lot of last summer and spring in the garden a year ago. And, you know, while I was going through a lot of therapy, it was also just like, oh, you know, um, the garden grows at its own pace and you can't control it. You neglect a tree and it dies, just like if you neglect a relationship or a friendship. We spend so much time looking over our shoulder and there's so much fear of missing out and there's so much uh, competition and oh my God, did I get enough likes and did I get enough this and that and the other and you know, someone, there's another expression that you know, this will produce some eye rolls, but a flower doesn't bloom because of the bee. (laughs) A flower blooms and the bee comes. I love that expression. You know, I look at the flowers that are bursting forward at the garden and they don't care 
how big the flower is next to them or how, how much brighter it is. They're just doing their part to be their best. So in my lowest sort of darkest, you know, moments that we all have, that sort of stuff like really gave me encouragement and solace. I know that sounds super soppy, but. Um, no, I love that. I think um, there was a similar sentiment in Le Petit Prince, and that was one of my favorite phrases from the entire book was the flower metaphor. So mm-hmm. that's really lovely. Yeah, and also just like, uh, the, you know, also looking at the, bee, you know, I've, I'm a beekeeper, my parents are beekeepers, and um, every time I get a jar of honey, I just am like, wow, there's a massive amount of teamwork going on there. You need to learn anything about running a team. You think about how a beehive works and, uh, you know, organization and structure and so much hard work into a little jar of honey. So, you know, I think there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good metaphors in that garden that are, that are ripe for everyone. Martha Stewart is a friend of mine and she'd come, come to the garden and I was sharing something that had happened. And she said, you know, like just like the garden, Everyone needs to go through a tough winter to come back stronger in spring. You know, isn't that what's happening now also? We're having a really tough Mm. winter. We all are going to have to come back stronger. Uh, Politically, you know, let's hope there's a spring after November. And, um, you know, culturally, what's going on with COVID? And, you know, I think we we really need to take full advantage of the winter to bounce back stronger. I think that is one of the more beautiful parts of reconnecting to nature during the pandemic is the way that you really do notice that one, that nature does move on and two, seasons exist. Seasons are just a reminder that there is change coming and that, you know, the winter months or the months where there's no production of flowers or any sort of vegetables and fruits is just a season. Mm -hmm. And there's like an ephemeral beauty to that. Yeah, there's an impermanence to it, you know, mm. for sure. You know, and also, like, I think I'd spent a lot of time in the past worrying about what other people are doing and what my our competitors are doing at work. And, you know, oh, my God, I wish I'd done that better in my relationship. And I wish I hadn't have been such a dick here or I hadn't have been such an egoist there or, or, or anything like that. And I think the other thing that spending time with the garden has really taught me is sort of just, like, being in the present moment and taking care of what's right in front of you and what's growing right now and trying just to, like, stay there, which also I know sounds like a bumper sticker but it took me a long time to work that out and that really came from getting my hands dirty i mean there's a reason why these cliches still exist right it's because they're classic (laughs) yeah it's true (laughs) they're truisms (laughs) so another thing that i love about flamingo estate is that the depth and detail of every object in your home everything has a backstory from the wood paneling sourced from marrakesh to the porcelain water bowls that you bought from buckingham palace (laughs) How does collecting play into your creative process? I always wanted to own and build a home. You know, I just wanted it to be this place that was filled with things that people had made, people that I knew, people that I loved, people that I uh, respected. And so, you know, the, some of the art and all the, the stuff is made by people I knew and they made it with their own two hands. And so, and I feel as though so the, the, their spirits somehow imbued into those objects. So even if I'm at home on my own, um, weirdly, I always sort of feel like I'm around those people. So there's nothing there that's junky. There's nothing there that doesn't have a backstory. I really pleased that very hard when I started moving things in. And there's just a lot of stuff there that's got meaning for me and you know not to knock ikea but there's nothing disposable there it sort of took time i collected a lot of that stuff of you know my entire adult life so i had a storage unit in new york for years and years and years and i would just like slowly gather things together so and now i think that's the other thing about my childhood which was interesting my mom and dad you know i told you the story about trying to save the farm 
they lost the farm in the end. We went bankrupt. And uh, my mom and dad had a beautiful sort of dining table that we only used on special occasions, kind of, you know, twice a year. Really beautiful crystal and, and china that, again, was sort of the good stuff that we were to use you know, Christmas or a birthday or something. But, you know, and we lost all that stuff. And so they never really got to enjoy it. And so I have a really very hard and fast rule around using everything you've got and never buying something that's disposable, not keeping something for a special occasion. You know, at the office, I outlawed, a long time ago, I outlawed paper plates and plastic cups. And I was like, if we're going to the trouble of having a meal, you are going to eat out of something nice. And so um, I just think there, again, sort of, it's really important to please that stuff. So I really love this quote by you in Business of Fashion. You wrote, my advice is to travel the world and be curious, learn to make things with your own hands, make lots of mistakes and learn from them. Oh, and go see Selfridges. Do you feel that? (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really great quote. Uh, Do you feel that travel is an important part of creative and cultural development? Yeah, I mean, the Selfridges part's true. I I didn't even remember that quote, but Selfridges is one of those department stores that, I mean, anyone that works in VM or, or, or art direction knows that they've created a world there that's so beautiful and so exciting and bucks the trend of, of retail, you know, retail marketing, the windows and the activations and there's a cinema downstairs and all that sort of stuff. They really, they, they really try hard to do something interesting there. And you feel that when you walk in the door. So for sure, 100% yes, of course. You know, I think it's really important to see those things firsthand. And, you know, not just uh, for work, but when I turned 40, I decided to travel really aggressively. Go to the edge of the map and uh, just go to the places I've always never imagined I would go to. And so, and that really opened my eyes to so much stuff. Going up Everest and going to the North Pole and the South Pole. I mentioned those before going across Africa and to Morocco and really trying to get off the tourist trap path. Mm. Again, sort of like, in a world where everyone knows everything about everything and everyone's seen everything on Pinterest or Instagram, you know, it's just so wonderful to just go and experience how something feels. The other thing that I have said before, Studio KO, who worked on the house, says this too, that, you know, we talk a lot about the way something looks and we talk a lot about the way something photographs, but you really need to go somewhere to get a sense of how something feels. And I think our job as a creative person is not to shoot something or make something look good, but it's really about making someone feel good. So I think, you know, really understanding that and understanding what the triggers are for someone to feel good and, and have fun. You know, because so much of my work was at going to parties in New York and kissing hands and shaking babies and seeing clients and going to work. And it was just like nonstop. But I hated going out. I hated that so much because I felt like I was always in a room with a bunch of people doing small talk and mm. having bad drinks. And I just really started to think about what makes a good party and a bad party is not what you see, but really how you use the space to, you know, make someone feel different. So... The house actually was very much designed as a series of different rooms to take people through. Um, you know, go from the kitchen into the bar, into the living room, into the garden room, and the garden's divided up into multiple rooms. So you kind of have this Alice in Wonderland feeling as you go through a space. And I'm really, and even in our work at the agency, like, and even in our office, I'm very borderline obsessed with how spaces make people feel and how moving mm-hmm. through spaces makes people feel. And think about it next time you go to a great party and you realize it's really because you get, you get to have some different influences as you move through from a bar to a dance floor mm-hmm. to another room to another room. Absolutely. So it's all these like little boxes rather than one big one. 
so I look, I don't watch HGTV, but I've seen <laughs> sometimes like, oh, oh, it's an open plan. It's an open plan house. And I was like, oh, yuck, that's the worst thing you could do. <laughs> you build that wall between the kitchen and the dining room. You need to have a different a different room for those things. And, you know, just thinking about the, the way that rooms make people feel is something I've always been very fascinated by. Now I understand what the owl doors are for. Yeah. It's uh-huh. that separation and entry into a completely different mindset. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, you know what was the inspiration for that? I remember uh, we did a virgin project a long time ago, not a few years ago, and, and um, we were talking about the Virgin Atlantic Clubhouses, the airline clubhouse. If anyone's been to the Virgin Clubhouse in London, you go from the door, you can always see the bar because your mind will associate fun with a bar. And so there's a direct line of sight from the entry to a barman making a drink. <laughs> and then as you go through that space, you know, there's different levels, there's, it's higher and it's lower. And you, even though they're not rooms, so to speak, it creates the illusion of going through different zones. An American Airlines version of that would be one flat room mm-hmm. with a, you know, a bar at one end or something, but they, they divided up the space with different levels and really thought about the way those zones make people feel and it's not a big shift you know it's not like a giant gesture it's just mm-hmm. something that they, you could tell someone was really thoughtful about that about the, the mental state of someone and you get that feeling in a good hotel you get that feeling in a great restaurant uh you get that feeling in a great store it's back to selfridges it's why you know i think they do a good job as well because you go through these all immersive different zones that feel different from each other and it's 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 a remarkable they do a remarkable job one of my favorite books is The Architecture of Happiness by mm-hmm. Alain de Baton. And his whole premise is that spaces completely shape the way that we feel and experience. And so everything you're saying completely resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's also, it's funny, actually, I was thinking this today. We're on a Zoom call with a client and uh, a big client. So there's a lot of people on the call and it was a lot of people in their bedrooms on the Zoom call. What was so interesting was that everyone had a white bedroom. Everyone had a white wall. And I was like, God, guys, come on. We need to get rid of the white paint. Let's do something more interesting for everyone. It's not funny how we sort of get acquiesced into sort of the the, the easy option, perhaps. Yeah. It's interesting. It's so been, actually, hasn't that been interesting this during quarantine to have your colleagues and your friends and your clients on Zoom? You've got a glimpse into their homes. And it's very telling when you see where someone lives, isn't it? And not, not in terms of being fancy or not being fancy or anything like that, just in terms of uh, the idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies of, of personalities. It's really, it's really fun to see. I mean, the funny thing is, is websites like West Elm have created backdrops for mm-hmm. Zoom users. <laughs> so there are <laughs> options out there for those who are so sensitive to creating an environment just for their users to experience, not even for them because it's not real backdrop in their home it's just digital backdrops for the people they're zooming with <laughs> how do we how do we feel about that is that a good thing or not i don't know uh, i think it says a lot about how we want to maintain perceptions right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 100% 100% so i would love to know what would you say is the most important skill to have in the creative industry uh impatience just a desire to get stuff done and do you have any mantras that you live by? Huh. I don't know. My ex-boyfriend used to say before a meeting, set your intentions, set your intentions, set your intentions. And started to get really clear about that before I start a call, whether I go to an event, you know, go to into a meeting or something. It's just like take a deep breath and think about the, you know, the result you want at the end of it. And it's something I never did before. I was just rushing, 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 rushing. And um, that, I think, is a consistent drumbeat for me now, which is nice, um, really, to get clear about it. 
As a final question, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Can I say something really silly? I actually think if I had told the 18-year-old version of myself that I had would have lived so many lives and done as many things as I currently feel like I have done, I would have been really happy to know that was coming up. And so, you know, I think I had some such major mistakes and I've made, I've done some things that I just was so completely unqualified for. And, you know, I just think that has been such a, a gift. I've been so lucky to have it that I think it just would have been to keep going. I don't know whether you're asking me this because you're looking for a sort of like, oh, I wish you'd known this. I think the not knowing was the best part. If I kind of died tomorrow, I'd be really happy that I just met so many people and I've been to so many interesting, unusual places. And I'm remarkably grateful that I was given that chance. I'm very, very lucky. And I don't take that lightly. When did you start developing, what is Flamingo Estate, first of all? And how did you start developing this sort of horticulture lifestyle brand? Okay, so I had always wanted to have a gardening brand and always, I had always wanted a gardening brand. I felt like gar the garden was part of the world that hadn't been disrupted. You know, years, 20 years ago, my first job in New York was in the same building as Martha Stewart, you know, long, long, long time before I met her. I used to sort of have fantasies of being in the elevator with her and handing her an envelope that was like, here, I have an idea for a gardening brand. And so when I got to New York, when I got to Los Angeles and I, you know, I opportunity to have this beautiful garden and this orchard, I thought, okay, I should use this as a studio for the brand I always wanted. And, uh... That was my goal. My goal was sort of, it was a bit cleaner than it ended up. It was sort of like, oh, you know, one day I'm going to sell my agency and I'm going to put the money into starting a brand and it's going to be so black and white and so easy to do. But it was always that idea that was on the shelf for another day. Well, you know, what next year or when I find I need to build another few years, we need to be worth a bit more money and can't sell my agency just yet. But, you know, that's always sort of the end goal if you open an agency. So we'd started making candles and I had started learning about aromatherapy and I started learning about sort of um, supplements from the garden and the water from my house runs into the garden. So we, myself and the team had started making shampoo and body wash and things like that just for us and for everyone at the office. And obviously I've been making honey and olive oil and from my own personal kitchen and bathroom, really. And so started selling that and uh, in a small way. What's interesting though is that Corona hit and I just sort of started building a website to sell this stuff. And uh, every now and again, when someone wasn't busy at work, I'd be like, oh, let's just do this. Or can you help me brand that? Or, you know, sort of a pet project. And then mm -hmm. one of the local farmers I know said, came to me and said, uh, you know, a little bit like my parents' story, we're going to go bankrupt. The, all of our produce is tied to restaurants and hotels. And I was like, well, let's start selling your vegetables. Uh, I know how to sell things. I think she thought we could sell a couple of dozen boxes that first Friday. And we sold 400 boxes of vegetables and 800 the next week. And wow. tomorrow we'll have 25 drivers driving truckloads of vegetables around Los Angeles. And since then added, you know, other farms and other growers and a baker and a flower farm. And it's 15 weeks this week that we will have been doing this. And we have already delivered thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of boxes of vegetables and flowers and loaves of bread and olive oil and honey and uh, supplements and you know everything else we've been adding oh, to it incredible. so what's so interesting almost all of that money goes directly back to the farms mm. um we plant a tree for every product we sell and so you know i'm not rich from this project yet but we've we've grown at a rate that i am actually just astonished by and happy that people are thinking about the food they eat and as i yeah. said in the that they spend their time with and the, the meals they have together as a family so it has nourished my soul and 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 
and opened my eyes to a lot of to a lot of that. But it is it's funny back to what we were discussing earlier. You know, in my head I had this idea that I would get rich in advertising and start my real thing I loved. You know, Corona hit and actually the agency took a complete nosedive. We lost every client we had. Most of our work was in fashion or travel. Two industries hit really hard. So my desire to bow out with a big check isn't happening anytime soon. Luckily, the agency's filled with amazing people and who I love deeply and work has picked back up. So things are fine. But it's almost like the world had been pushing me into finally doing this thing I had wanted yeah. to do forever. And then um, it's not a gardening brand yet. I'm not selling soil, but uh, I, will work, <laughs> I will one day. And um, yeah, for sure. You know, this is about pleasure from the garden. It's about the food and the products and, the, um, you know, the hand wash, my Aesop hand wash that yeah. I used to use all the time, you know, but I can't use it now because it's filled like everything else is filled with chemicals and I can't put it into the garden. So just like thinking about how we can make smart choices. The other really interesting part about this adventure for me is really, really, really understanding the way things are made and what they're made from in a way that I never really understood before. Even as a really conscious consumer, I didn't really understand that there is a huge gulf between not bad for you and good for you. You think about the shampoo you use or the cleaning products you use that are not bad for you, but they're not good for you either. And so um, how you can use ingredients that will you know, encourage mental clarity or um, boost your, your relaxation or your serotonin levels or things like yeah. that. So it's so interesting and I never really had the time or took the time to really understand it or, or question stuff I saw. That's been really a, you know, a great privilege to learn about yeah. and then put into action. I'm very, very proud of what we've done in a very short amount of time. And, uh, you know, and the bookshop became a grocery store. Um, yeah. You know, and we've outgrown that now. Now we have a huge warehouse um, in Glendale where a uh, production line of people packing and sorting and cleaning and delivering. And, and that's I, happened in 15 weeks, you know. It's amazing. I really love, too, that you just always went with your gut instinct of what you naturally felt drawn to and people responded. Because it's not the traditional trending Thing that maybe people would have anticipated done so well but the fact that you've seen a huge response in it just only goes to show how intuitive entrepreneurship really does work i i guess you know, maybe this is a better answer to something you asked earlier i guess like the only question you need to ask yourself is whether you like it yeah you know does this give me pleasure because if it gives you pleasure the chances are it'll give someone else pleasure too. You know, I've been so allergic to focus groups and research groups through my entire career at the agency. And they've sort of become a necessary evil. And I feel as though they, uh, something culturally, I feel like last year, we just were in a focus group every day about something. And I used to just think, do I like it? Off topic, you know, so I, someone yeah. once said to me, I just wonder whether my boyfriend's in love with me anymore. And I, I said to my friend, I think being in love with someone is sort of like being hungry. You know, you are, you're not. You kind of know it. It's not like you need to wonder. It's like, am I cold? Am I hot? Am I, am I, am I hungry? Am I, am I not? Am I thirsty? Am I not? Am yeah. I in love? Am I not? It's also like, do I like this or do I don't? For me, it's like very simple. And asking yourself, getting really clear about your own 
likes and dislikes and then like going with your gut and saying if it's good enough for me to raise my curiosity around it it's yeah. good for someone else so also especially now we've been dealing with factories and manufacturers and with this conversation with this very very good manufacturer who makes products and we had sort of had a, a body wash and a hand wash that we've been making in the garden and I, it was filled with um, eucalyptus and, and uh, sage and some other stuff and it smelled really good and I, I took it to someone who can make it at scale and make it in a food safe environment and that sort of yeah. stuff so I said, I want you to take my recipe and I want you to make it. And they're like, well, yeah, but we need to add a synthetic stabilizer so it's going to stay good on the shelf. And it, oh, but don't worry, it's only like 3%. No one's ever going to know it's synthetic or natural. Don't worry about it. In that meeting, I remember just feeling my stomach not up. This is one of those moments yeah. where you're like, if I want that for myself, I can't fake it for someone else. And so... Lots of little choices like that. All this stuff I had no idea we'd be thinking about, which has been such an interesting turn of events. Well, I'm really excited about all of the products that you're developing and all of the projects that you guys are working on. Thank you so much, Richard. <laughs> this was such an incredible conversation. I always love hearing all of your stories and your anecdotes. Oh, you're so sweet. I feel like we could be talking all day. All right, we'll speak very soon. Thank you. To discover Richard's work, you can find him at chandeliercreative.com or follow him on social at chandeliercreative, at Owl Bureau, or at Flamingo Estate. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Art of Travel is created and hosted by Olivia Lopez, produced by Jason Stewart, with music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you then. <laughs>